right, so let's talk a little bit about the markets here. Welcome to Bull Bear Radio. Market pricing is nuts. Each week, we catch up with WBI's experts, Matt and Don Schreiber. Down 77%. You know what you need to recover from that? A miracle. WBI brings you wealth building market insights. Hi, I'm Matt Schreiber, and this is Bull Bear Radio. Wow, that was that was an interesting turn of events here. This is Matt Schreiber. I'm the host, as always. Well, maybe not always, but most of the time, we've got our uh, lovely, uh, talented expert, uh, Don Schreiber. Uh, Don, uh, how are you doing today? I'm pretty lovely. And where are you today, Don? Because I'm fly- I'm like uh, uh, flying solo here in the studio. You're feeling lonely in the studio, man. I am in sunny, beautiful, 80-degree Arizona. Well, you're sounding pretty good over there. And, you know, hey, they've got these things called Skype these days. So I see Don. You guys don't see Don. Usually I'm sitting right across from him. And it's great because we get to talk back and forth. We get to talk a little bit about the markets. By the way, so let's talk about the markets, Matt. Let's, I, let's let's cook it. Holy cow. I mean, you know, we're still, you know, it looked like the market's going down. Now it's going up. I mean, you know, who knows where it'll be by the time this thing airs. But, hey, look, circumstances haven't changed much. We still have a P multiple that's really close to 25 high prices. Earnings, you know, we're concluding earnings season here. Don, you know, what's your opinion of earnings season so far? You've been on CNBC uh, the last couple of weeks uh you know with carl cantoni and such and uh you know you, i think you were talking about earnings season here and your expectations going forward for markets in the economy well as we said in the past you know earnings are looking pretty good we've got a good number going f- uh forward here for uh, q3 we've got uh, earnings probably about five percent positive for the quarter expectations pretty much met anybody who has not met expectations or is giving us a soft forecast going forward is being taken out to the woodshed or the wood that's a wood chipper baby it's a really bad thing if you ever fall into a wood chipper so we don't want too well, many that was that was uh, a chainsaw don maybe you can't hear the hear the effects here on uh you know the east coast but man that was a chainsaw chainsaw don so uh what we're concerned about is fourth quarter follow through on that uh earnings uh, you know, retail's even picked up a little bit. Yeah, well, uh, we'll restaurants see, we'll, doing better. What? Consumer discretionary, you know, looks whoa, a little bit firmer whoa. than it did, you know, early in the reporting season. Don, Don, man, we're not done with reporting season. There's still a lot of consumer discretionary outstanding. We've got, you know, including REITs, uh, four of uh, 11 sectors in negative territory. And by the way, I mean, consumer discretionary is like just above break even at the moment. So that could change. Yeah, still, one of our big concerns. Big, hey, we had eleven sectors out of eleven with positive earnings and positive earnings surprises last quarter. We're down to seven out of eleven by the end of the reporting 7-11. season. Hey, seven eleven. That's a hot number. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so you know, hey, to to counter you with this whole uh, enthusiasm about the uh, the consumer here, I mean, they're really going to have to, you know, expand the uh, debt envelope uh, if there's any left. I mean. 
Uh, ben Lusendorf over at uh, the Wall Street Journal here, uh, Lubsdorf, sorry, Lubsdorf, had an uh, awesome article last week about household debt hitting new highs, uh, $12.9 trillion, up 0.9%, and it's the 13th straight quarterly increase in household consumer debt. I mean, it's it's risen 16% since 2013. I mean... Hey, that reminds me of what was going on in 2006 and 2007 before we got that 2008 crash. Consumer debt was at an all-time high. You mean tell me we're above that now? Well, we are. And, uh, you know, one of the continued concerns here is a sharp rise in delinquencies for auto loans made to subprime uh, subprime borrowers. I mean, it's it's really getting pretty hairy. The volume of outstanding loans is, uh, you know, dwarfed by housing debt, but uh, it's one of the most rapidly expanding uh, segments of consumer debt and household debt in general. Mortgages hey, make up two thirds of the overall debt, eight point seven trillion dollars. But auto loans, by the way, jumped twenty three billion dollars to one point two trillion dollars. You're talking like almost a 20 percent increase. That's because of those uh, cars that had to repl be replaced because of the multiple hurricanes that hit the southeast and southwest of the United States. One thing's for sure, if the consumer, which drives 70% of this economy, starts to weaken in terms of their continued expenses, Q4 earnings are going to look less rosy. I would say Santa Claus may not have his sleigh as full as normal. He may not be coming to town. In no, terms he'll of come earnings. to town. Oh, well, he'll come to he, town. Okay. He, so. his, his sleigh might not be as full so as normal. So check this out. Credit card debt was up $24 billion to $808 billion. So that's well over a 20% increase. You know, um, student loans up $13 trillion. Uh, I meant $13 billion to $1.3 trillion. That's a 10% increase. We're talking about huge increases in household debt here. Can the consumer actually, can can households continue this pace? Or did, is this disastrous? Well, that's one of the reasons why we're so interested in this uh, tax policy. So, and whether or not that tax policy gets passed. Because without some fresh dollars in the pocket... You know, uh, the Treasury filling up the consumer's pocket early in the new year, we may have a recession in our offing. Yep, he's back. Chainsaw Don. So, what, Don, what do you think? You, you mentioned this tax package. What do you think about the tax package? There's a lot on the, the you know, that's come out of, in, in, on the personal side, and there's a lot on the corporate side. Let's tackle the personal side. What are you thinking about? Uh, individual personal tax cuts as far as the House and the Senate have put forth so far? So either the House or the Senate plan. Love it or hate it. Or not. I'm, maybe I'm hating it. You're hating I'm it. I'm hating it. Oh, yeah. Whoa. I do not love it. I do not love it. We've got a tax package that's much smaller, much weaker in terms of its effect on GDP than what we had hoped for. We were looking... We're looking for a historic tax package, something big, not something that's going to, you know, lay an egg on the on uh, on signature. We were looking for uh, big tax cuts like uh, uh, President Reagan put into place under the uh, tax acts that he had. That was a three point eight percent of GDP tax cut. This is less than one percent on a projected basis. That's a quarter of the power 
to drive economic growth. Well, we got to give the consumer some more this, money. We got to give corporations some more money. We need a much better economic cycle going forward than we've got behind us. Well, they're trying to pass it under this 1.5 trillion dollar, you know, easy simple majority deal, and that's one reason why the the tax cut situation on the corporate side's watered down, isn't that right? You bet. So think about this. 1.5 trillion is the full negative budget impact that this tax act can have over the next 10 years. This isn't an economy that is a 20 plus trillion dollar economy each year. And last year we had a deficit increase of almost a trillion dollars in one year. How in the world are you going to fit a meaningful tax package that provides economic stimulus into $1.5 billion over 10 years? Trillion, You're trillion, not yep. going to. Yeah. It, I mean, it just doesn't seem like we're going to get the benefit that we were looking for here. Because one, they're trying to pass it under this simple majority type of situation. Reconciliation, and, baby. And two, they're you know they're not taking into consideration the growth such a tax act could provide. So you know what are what are some of the things you did not like about the corporate policy? Uh, you know, the tax cuts, the corporate tax cuts that they put forth uh, so far. Well, if you if you follow the uh, uh, the campaign contributions, who makes the largest campaign contributions, which is uh, large corporations in America, they get a nice tax cut. They go to uh, uh, a flat tax of uh, 20%. But, you know, the smaller and mid-sized companies that fit into this, you know, pass-through um, uh, structure, which is a S-corporation or an LLC, um, currently they're disfavored under the current tax law uh, right now. Uh, C corporations uh, pay a top tax rate if they don't have massive deductions that are bringing their average tax rate down to the 23% approximately that's enjoyed by C corporations. If they're at the highest tax rate, which a few sectors are, like utilities, um, they're paying 35 cents on a dollar. If you're a profitable S corporation or pass-through entity, you're currently paying tax at 396 which obviously is higher than 35. And on top of that, on top of that, you get that nice special uh, Medicare tax of 3.8% that's added onto your federal tax bill. So you're really at almost 44% versus 35. Under this new tax act, it, we were hoping for a little bit more rationalization. Why should small and mid-sized companies in the United States be penalized because they don't make as large campaign contributions as the large cap companies do. I don't think they should. I think that that is a kind of dysfunctional politics that, you know, just needs uh, to be reconciled. Take them all out, line them up, and... Oops. Jeez, man, so, you firing up that chainsaw today, Don. Uh, well, you know, 20, hey, hey, 25% is the uh, tax... Uh, for pass-through entities, unfortunately, if you're profitable, you're not going to get the 25% tax rate. Most of 70% under the House plan uh, of your tax will be taxed at the 43.4% uh, that you're currently paying. Under the House plan, you're going to pay close to uh, the same thing uh, because they phase out the uh, uh, special uh, deduction that you would normally get, which is about 18% 
for small businesses to try to levelize the playing field from a tax standpoint if you make incomes in excess of $500,000, which includes the profit of the company. The problem is that you have to pay tax before you reinvest that profit, and there's no way the small and mid-sized companies get to compete on a level tax playing field. All right. So, hey, yo, yo, dude. That's my soapbox. Yeah. Well, you were on it. That's for sure. <laughs> you know, let's talk about debt for a second at a, at a global level here. You know, the United States is at about 25% GDP, uh, debt to GDP ratio, right? Um, you know, and most of the developed large economies, Eurozone, Japan, you know, right after the crisis, we're at that level. I mean, yeah, did did we increase the debt uh, since the financial crisis? Yes, but not meaningfully uh, relative to these other uh, folks. The Eurozone went from 25% to climbing closer to 50%. It's not quite there yet, but uh, it's in the ballpark, let's say. And Japan's in the 100% neighborhood almost, you know, if you're just looking at a simple chart, for God's sakes. So why couldn't we add a little bit more, you know, uh, debt here? you know, uh, and see if, uh, take the risk and see if we can pay for it, you know? Yeah, I think that dynamic scoring should be, you know, part of the analysis. I do think that uh, uh, we can, we're, here's the deal, right? We're, they're so assuming like we, if we don't, no If growth. we don't get a powerful tax package, we're going to get slow growth. And we're already adding to the deficit by a trillion bucks a year. I say, let's put a few dollars a bet on the tax plan actually growing the economy and growing tax revenue. And I, I would imagine we could reduce the deficit because there's going to be so much more revenue produced at higher growth rates, economic growth rates, than what we have now. That's what happened under uh, Reaganomics. And the growth in deficits isn't about a lack of revenue. It is about spending. And the guys who have control of the budget from a spending standpoint are the same folks that can't get anything done in Washington, the politicians. Yeah, man. I mean, you got to be in it to win it, baby, right? You bet. All right. Well, we're going to take a break here. Don, thanks, man. Enjoy some sunshine, but I'm sure you're not, uh, you know, it's it's not all, uh, all fun and games. I'm sure you're, you know, working your tail off out there. So thanks for joining us today for uh, a few minutes. We're going to have a special guest in the next segment here. And uh, as usual, you can always... Follow Don on Twitter uh, at WBICEO, and, and we'll be right back. Interested in practice management and market commentary? For our up-to-the-minute take on markets and the economy, follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn at WBI Investments. Are you interested in practice management and other insights on how to navigate today's market conditions? We also post regular market commentary on our website, WBIinvestments.com. All right, and we're back. This is Bull Bear Radio here, and I have a very special guest today, uh, Steve Van Solkema. He, uh, he's a chief operating officer over at Millington Securities. Now, I, I mean, you guys might not know who Millington Securities is. Uh, it's actually a firm that uh, is an affiliate of WBI. It's a trading firm. Uh, got some other cool stuff going on there. But, Steve, you know, first, tell us a little bit about yourself and, um, you sure. know, this isn't your first, you know, trip to the rodeo, is it? No, no, it's not. It's a pleasure to be here, first of all. But um, yeah, this is—I've uh, been here at Millington Securities uh, since uh, 2014. 
when uh, you know I was asked to sort of come on and and uh, really help build out uh, the broker dealer and the registered investment advisor of Millington. But it was easy, right? Uh, it was a piece of cake. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why you guys are paying me just to sit around and twiddle my thumbs all day. That's uh, no, of course I'm joking. It was not easy. Uh, you know, uh, built- if if you actually know Steve, he's not a, a thumb <laughs> twiddler. So it was it's surprising that he would characterize any aspect of what he does as as twiddling his thumbs because well, he's. At that least, would be fun for Steve. At least you guys threw the sleeping bag in, you know, so I can sleep in the office yes, on my weekends. Yes, yes. You know, it's it's a very nice uh, cot with a sleeping bag on it, and uh, you know, he's he's here all the time. So yeah. you know, well. Prior to that, prior to Millington, um, uh, working backwards, I uh, was in a similar role. I worked for Ally uh, Securities, or otherwise known as Ally Financial. It was the broker-dealer at Ally Financial, uh, formerly known as GMAC. And uh, at Ally Securities, I did sort of a similar type of situation where I started out with uh, two or three people. And we ended up uh, building out a broker-dealer. Blowing it up. Blowing it up in a good way. Uh, Well, in a good way first, where we blew it up from three people to about 42 sales and trading. And uh, we were basically uh, moving a lot of paper and uh, doing a lot of trading activity. And it was very successful. Unfortunately, uh, the the business uh, needed to go away. Uh, so we had to shut that business down, uh, not because of profitability, due to other reasons that are a little bit complex and beyond my control. Uh, but uh, before that, I was at Bear Stearns for many years, um, hmm. primarily working on the asset management side. Yeah. P- doing uh, portfolio management. Um, trading. Uh, trading, exactly. Yeah. Cool. So. All right. So let's talk a little bit about trading in general right now. I think one of the things, you know, for a lot of our listeners, I think we have uh, some folks that are just investors and, uh, you know, are always looking for great information. There's a lot of advisors that listen to our show. There's some people who know nothing about finance that listen to, you know, our show. So we try and keep it, you know, uh, not not uh, too deep. We'll start here. And where's a trade go? If you're you're an advisor or, hey, even if you're plugging your, you know, your trade into to E-Trade or Scott Trade, does that mean that that institution necessarily is doing the trade? They're actually executing in the security. Right. So, you know, it's an excellent question and uh, certainly one that a, a lot of people don't understand. Uh, both on the retail side, even up to institutional uh, investors, certainly. So you know, you you have uh, you know you have the E trades of the world. You have the retail facing Charles Schwab, et cetera. Schwab uh, do the trades? No, uh, typically, typically, um, you know, these larger institutions, I will say, have trading desks, right? But um, when you get into the Pershings and the Charles Schwabs, TD Ameritrades, et cetera, their trading desk, uh, for the most part is not actually executing the order themselves with the market. Typically what they are doing, and this isn't always the case, but very often what they're doing is sending that order out to yet another uh, financial intermediary. And that financial intermediary, be it a market maker or another broker-dealer, might actually not be doing the trade themselves, or they might be doing it um, using what's called a smart order router, where it basically just sort of spins the wheel and says... All right, we're looking for the best market at the time, and uh, we're going to pick this guy versus this guy. And so you get companies like Citadel and KCG and some of uh, you know these heavy-duty electronic-based, uh, high-volume uh, market-making firms 
those are typically the ones that are getting the smaller trades out there. So, and when I say small, I don't mean you know extremely small, but uh, even thousand shares, ten thousand share trades. If that goes to a Pershing or a Charles Schwab, even on an institutional order, yeah, very often their desk is just pushing a button, gets routed out to somebody else, and they're filling it on the spot. Does that mean that, uh, say, you're you're trying to buy or sell a stock? Um, you know, obviously, you want to try and get the best price to either lock in your gain or make sure that you limit your loss. But does that necessarily that that whole process there? Are you getting the best execution quality? It sounds to me like there's a lot of people that can be involved in a single trade, for example. There's a lot of there's a lot of uh, steps in the process and a lot of hands in the pie, so to speak. Look, I mean, one one thing we speaking of pie, I mean, we had some good. Did uh, you have some good pie Thanksgiving? Don't don't talk about pie, but I had great pie at Thanksgiving. But yeah, we're we're uh, I'm I'm full on pie, full on turkey. Although I got some good turkey soup cooking up right now. But oh, that's cool. That's cool. (laughs) So to answer your question, I want to be a little bit careful because you 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 used a phrase called best execution, which is uh, you know as we know. Wow, that's deep. you know, yeah. that, 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 there, there's a, there's meaning behind that. And, and it is true that regulators um, justifiably uh, insist that a broker dealer that's executing a trade on behalf of a client or for a client or even for another broker dealer has the duty and the obligation to go out and get the best execution. Question is, what does that really mean? What's the definition of it? What's the definition? And does the definition... Uh, necessarily change over time, so to speak. So best execution at any given point in time, uh, and literally given our time and our electronic environment that we're trading in now, uh, that's down to the millionth of a second, literally, uh, maybe even of a nanosecond. But at any second uh, in time, you have what's called the national best bid or best offer uh, that's out there in the market for any given security. And so as long as a customer receives that price um, or better, you know, maybe a little bit inside of that bid-ass spread. But that can be a fairly widespread depending on what Absolutely. you're trying to trade. Absolutely. But but even beyond that. So spread is – that's that's sure. another term we're throwing around here is, is actually uh, the spread between – the, the spread between the best bid and the best offer or, or what the uh, market participants out there in the world, what is the best price that they're willing to buy or pay for a security versus what is the best price or the highest price that they're willing uh, – I'm sorry, the lowest price that they're willing to sell a security at. So, and that any, spread can be profit for them. Well, that is the profit for them. That is the profit for you know a market maker. Um, and that that's perfectly reasonable. But yes, that spread can be very tight or can also be uh, quite, very wide, quite wide. right in inside that national. Absolutely. Basket. Absolutely. Right. And the, the, the point also I was trying to, to make is that uh, that national best bid offer or NBBO, as some people refer to it, uh, could be maybe just for 100 shares on each side. Right. So meaning that uh, the tightest market, you know, if it's ninety dollars and ninety dollars and one cent could just be for 100 shares. Well, what if you want to buy a thousand shares? Well, the next, you know, if, if you push a button out there and that's what happens typically when you're sending these orders through uh, some of these large custodian houses and broker dealers, 
they're they're picking up that national best bid offer. But then the next time that they've got to go buy the re- remaining 900 shares of your order, well, that ne- the next best bidder offer, it's not going to be at the same price. It's not price. the same. It t- could be That's totally different. Exactly. And as we know with the advent could of- could be even wider or could t- be tighter, but- It could be. Um, but, and, you know, market makers have automatic refreshes, et cetera. But as we also know, and, and uh, we haven't spoken about yet, but, you know, there's the- high-frequency traders out there that people have been hearing about and reading about a lot over the past five, six, seven, eight years. And those high-frequency traders, they are programmed to look for that sort of retail order or smaller institutional order that's not being treated very well. And they're trying to front-run that. And again, working in an environment where there are millionths of a second where a high-frequency trader can jump ahead and say, oh, somebody bought an, um, 100 shares, but I see that they want to buy 1,000. Well, if they can buy the rest of that 900 shares, just a little bit of inside um, of that offer, uh, you know, they can make a profit. Maybe it's only a half a penny each time, but you do that a lot of times over a lot, it's a of, lot of pennies. That's a lot of pennies. So, um, you know, if you, if you haven't read the book, uh, Flash Boys, you know, was out a few years ago and, and it'll, you know, give you a good, good, you know, backdrop for what we're talking about here. Excellent. I mean, it breaks yeah. it down very nice from a, a basic perspective to really, really getting pretty deep on on the mechanics of the market and what goes on behind the scenes. Yeah. Everybody kind of sees the the headline news on a day to day basis. Markets up, markets down. They might see news stories as to why that's happening. But at the same time, you have these market mechanics in terms of trading. So the high frequency guys, would they be considered? There's two segments of the trading business, high touch or low touch? Well, typically, uh, high frequency trading would be considered low touch um, in the sense that you uh, let's let's just start and take a step back and just talk about what what low touch trading is in general. Uh, low touch trading basically is is the use of any computer program or uh, to use a little bit of a fancier word, an algorithm, where you've got some very smart quantitative people, and they develop these computer programs and algorithms to go out there into the marketplace and to find uh, opportunities. I to- wish I had one of those penny pinching algorithms myself. Wow. You know, those, those okay. could be pretty profitable, right? We've got some smart people at WBI and yeah. Millington. I know maybe we should have them building uh, algorithms, or maybe they already are in secret. We don't know. But- I don't know. Are you, are you Batman? <laughs> I thought we already had that guy on the show, I think. Uh, yeah, exactly. I heard that. But um, so, you know, low touch trading again, uh, basically think of it as algorithmic trading uh, in general. Uh, some of the algorithmic trading that we talked about is this exact trading that I was mentioning earlier, where you have Pershing uh, and you have a trader at Pershing or Charles Schwab. And I'm not trying to pick on those those firms. I'm just using them as examples. But they have a trader, quote unquote. Well, it's what people know. They know the brand name. So, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But they have a trader that'll say, oh, I've got an order for a thousand shares of, uh, you know, Apple or some company. And they push a button. And that put that literally just sends the order into an algorithm, which goes out and seeks the best price uh, possible. Um, and that's one aspect of algorithmic or low touch trading, where there really isn't any human being involved, other than that pushing it and pushing a button, and kind of a set it and forget it uh, type of. Uh, uh, approach. The high frequency traders that you're talking about are also using pr- computer algorithms. A little bit of a difference, though, in that the high frequency traders, their main goal is not to 
just get orders complete, you know, for their Pershing customers or their registered investment advisor customers. The the high frequency traders, uh, these are firms that are built solely with the purpose of exploiting opportunity, looking for ways that their computer algorithm algorithm can be just a little bit smarter than everybody else's algorithm. And so that they can, you know, get ahead of that client order or get ahead or sense a trend in the market and really take advantage of it. Um, they do provide a lot of liquidity. They've gotten a bad name. They especially got a bad name in that book, uh, Flash, Flash Boys, yeah. that you were just mentioning. And certainly, yeah, when, when your sole purpose is to exploit inefficiencies in the marketplace and, and try to build your systems stronger and faster, uh, you know, that does give you a bad name. But at the same time, I'll say, as a, speaking as a trader, they have provided a lot of liquidity to the market where sure. that's disappeared. And in hey, times. we're we're talking about America here, for God's sakes. You know <laughs> what I mean? This 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 hey, is not it's a the land of opportunity. Yes, it's a yes. land of opportunity. Capitalism happens to be you know what drives uh, you know innovation. And to innovate, you need to make money. Yeah. And, and uh, one of those areas that uh, has uh, really innovated in the last 10 or 15 years has been the trading Absolutely. You know, side of the way that trades are executed on a day-to-day -day basis. So Absolutely. with more technology, you know, comes a little bit different way to trade. It used to be humans on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Still is to a certain extent today, but now it's... A lot of computers involved. Still some people, though. So talk to us a little bit about high touch. Sure. What's the difference? You got low touch, which is computers trying to take advantage of inefficiencies in the marketplace, still trying to execute trades, still trying to make money off the trades, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, but they're held to a very, very tight standard on, in terms of best execution. So you, despite the profitability aspect of it the making pennies here and there and that adds up to a, a big pile of money at the end of the day potentially they still have to do what's right for the client which is to get best execution throughout Absolutely. the course of their trading day so that's low touch what's high touch though so yeah so with high touch trading basically the difference again is that you're using these skilled and experienced human traders who uh you know They've got a sense. They've got gut instinct, but they also have the ability to look around in the market um, in ways that are different than just what an algorithm would do. You know, high-touch trading, a trader, you know, sort of conducts a custom analysis of each order. Basically, a lot of high-touch orders these days, uh, the ones where, you know, certainly the greatest value can be added are uh, small cap names, mid cap names, uh, illiquid stocks in general, or ETFs, and certainly a lot of the uh, uh, stocks that are going to be a little bit harder to trade. Because the fact of the matter is, you know, if I've got a thousand shares to buy of Apple, I mean, do I need a human being involved? I'll be perfectly honest, probably not. All right, There's Apple or you know one of these other extremely mega cap, uh, large mega but cap if companies. You've, if you've got a hundred thousand shares of a go. company that only trades two hundred thousand shares a day, that's a completely yeah, a different situation. Different and it would be a different situation for an ETF that has a lot of small mid cap in it too, which we can get to in a second. But. Yeah. You know, uh, first, let's just deal with the small and mid cap type of situation. If you have an outsized uh, position, which a lot of money managers do, execution quality is is very key. Absolutely. Um, it, look, I, the, one of the key things that a lot of small and mid cap managers uh, and the way platforms are built, by the way, too. Who again? Mm -hmm. and so, if you're a customer at 
a very large institution, you know, a very big brand name bank, where does that trade go for the money manager that you're invested in? And that's a little bit of what we're talking about here. So the, the underlying execution can be the difference between good performance or not so good performance sometimes. Absolutely. You can have money managers that have got great ideas, right? They're looking at stocks. They're, maybe they're the best stock picker out there in the world, right? And there are some great money, uh, active money managers out there. The problem is, is that if you've got crummy trade execution that can take away a lot of performance we've seen how that. much uh you know are uh, we talking you know pennies on the dollar are we talking I, like this could be percentage points I, in I, performance it, per year I, I mean you know I, I i don't know of studies particularly that have been done where we could i could make a generality about it but i can tell you that my trading team over here which is extremely skilled and they're a great great bunch of guys but they go out there and we have seen literally sometimes uh, you mentioned like a stock that trades, let's say, 200,000 shares a day. Uh, we've seen, uh, and let's say we were happened to be working the stock ourselves and we had 50% of average daily volume or we had 100,000 shares to buy. All of a sudden, we see a Fidelity come in. And literally, this happened uh, not too long ago. We saw Fidelity come in and they bought 80,000 shares of stock all at once. And guess what it did? It drove the price up 45 cents just like that. Wow, and that was, I believe, over one and a uh, hundred and fifty basis points, or one and a half percent, right there. And guess what? Not did it just affect that? Now, uh, one hundred and fifty basis points. If you don't know what that is, it's one and a half percent. Pardon me. Yes, yes, absolutely. Again, fixed income background. I sometimes talk in basis points a little bit, right. but um, but no. But the the point is, is not only did it drive the price of that stock up uh, immediately. And so that, yeah, going back to our discussion earlier, it might have gotten best execution for that client because as the shares got filled over and over throughout uh, that millisecond of time period, um, it was getting the best offer each and every single point as shares were being filled. But what's the problem? It drove the price up 40, 50 cents. And that meant that at the end of the day, the customer is getting really horrible execution. Well, if the money manager had made 2 3% return on that investment over the course of a couple of months, let's say, and you suddenly have this horrible trading effect that takes away a percentage or one and a half percentage points. On the buy. On so you're the get, buy. You're getting into the stock. Yeah. And now if you could have bought it just a couple of pennies higher... You and, and the stock went up over time. Right. You're giving up one and a half percent return. And that's the problem. That's and, that's and why you have to doing be smart the, about what you're doing. And imagine doing that in both ways. If you're getting bad execution both in and out of a trade, you know, in my situation, again, it might be an extreme situation. But if you lost one percentage point on the way in and one percentage point on the way out. Well, that's a real tough situation for a money manager. He or she has got to make two percent before they even start having a good idea that's returning on that investment. Sure. So, yes, going back to high-touch trading and the point of these high-touch traders and what we were trying to do on that And exact over the last day. few years, too, I mean, we were talking, even though the markets have done well this year up, you know, in, in the uh, teens, um, you know, last year and the year before that and, and, and so on and so forth. Some years we were only up mid-single digits maybe yeah. most of the year. So if you think about the impact of that and you're a money manager and you're sitting there with a return of 4 or 5% and you have to give up 1% when you go to sell it, Yeah, 
Um, it's it's impactful, and it's and, impactful. and a lot of times those returns are. I'm sorry. The, the the negative impact of those returns are hidden, as we know. You know, if you're managing a uh, uh, exchange traded fund or a, a mutual fund, those commission costs or the explicit transaction costs, um, as well as the impl- what we call the implicit transaction costs, um, and just to, to mean explicit transaction costs, defining those as the commissions and the fees and that's the like things the five ninety five you pay it. Uh, you know your yes, exactly yeah. to to execute on a trade. Absolutely, but the implicit transaction costs are just import- as important, if not more important, very often, especially in the situation we're talking about. And those implicit transaction costs are. Did I drive the price of that stock up by those 40 cents? Because in that situation, yeah, I just cost my customer 40 cents by pushing in a pushing a button in a low-touch algorithmic type of situation where I did a set-it-and-forget-it uh, strategy, and that cost that investor and that portfolio manager a lot of money. And we think that high-touch trading, certainly, uh, where we sit back and we try to uh, take advantage of uh, you know, we, we watch our situations where we see high touch traders, I'm sorry, high frequency trading going on. We'll take a step back and we'll stop trading. We'll hold off. We'll get on the other side of the market. We'll try to mix things up. And that sometimes can save a lot of money for the money managers and their clients. So let's, let's talk about that for a second. Let's talk about Millington Securities and, you know, the benefit that you try and provide whether it's a WBI client or clients of another money manager, uh, potentially, what what's the goal there for you guys, and and are you any good at it? Absolutely. <laughs> well, we 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 like to think so, but we we do have some proof of it as well. Um, certainly, I'll, I'll talk to that in a little bit. But uh, Millington Securities, I think we 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 mentioned at the beginning, uh, is primarily uh, an institutional uh, broker dealer. Uh, we help uh, certainly WBI Investments, uh, registered investment advisor, as well as other uh, investment advisory institutional clients who either have ETFs, mutual funds, uh, separately managed accounts, etc. We help them with their institutional trading. Um, typically, what we are working are the larger block size orders. And when I say block size, I'm talking five, 10,000 shares or above uh, in order size. That's not to say that we don't take smaller orders, certainly. But the uh, benefits that we offer are that we have high touch trading services. Uh, we are not uh, ourselves one that just has a suite. Or high a- touch sounds expensive. I mean, when you say high touch, is it, what, what's the average? you know, cost uh, of that situation? It's a great question. And uh, I'll I'll answer that in two ways if I can. Um, A firm, uh, Greenwich Associates, for example, they're an independent research group. Uh, Every year they go out and they ask a whole lot of uh, buy side managers, what do you pay in commissions? What do you pay in explicit costs? And they ask, what do you do? uh, What do you pay for low touch versus high touch? Typically, the low-touch trades are a penny or below, you know, sometimes you know, quite a bit below. High-touch trading uh, alone, uh, many of these managers are paying 2.5 cents, 3 cents uh, on average. So what does that mean? That means that there is an, a definite value that these buy-side money managers see, and they're willing to pay up for it as far as an explicit commission costs. So that's one part of the answer. The second part is, at Millington, we actually try to do things a little bit differently. We try to minimize those explicit transaction costs, 
as much as we possibly can at the same time that we use our high touch trading capabilities to minimize the implicit transaction costs. Which would be that spread that we, we exactly. mentioned before. So you're t trying to tighten the spread throughout the course of uh, that time period that you might be trading that security, whether it's seconds or minutes or whatever, or a day yep. or and, days. And it's not even, yes, it's tightening the spread, certainly. Um, but it's also looking for the right opportunity. It's seeing when liquidity is available. Well, that's all we've got time for today. So, uh, you know, uh, thanks for joining us, uh, Thank Steve. You. And, and thanks for, uh, you know, tuning in to Bull Bear Radio. As always, you can check us out at WBIinvestments.com. Uh, Don, you know, at the top of the, the, the episode here, uh, WBI CEO is, is the handle over on Twitter. And uh, WBI president on uh, Twitter for uh, for me. So thanks again, Steve. And thanks again for listening to uh, Bull Bear Radio. We'll come back at you next week. Thank you very much. This is Bull Bear Radio, where each week you can count on our real market news and advice. Catch all of our podcast episodes at WBIinvestments.com. Past performance does not guarantee future results. The views presented are those of the podcast participants and should not be construed as investment advice. Podcast participants or clients of WBI may own stock discussed in this recording. All economic and performance information is historical and not indicative of future results. This is not an offer to buy or sell any security. No security or strategy, including those referred to directly or indirectly in this podcast, is suitable for all accounts, are profitable all of the time, and there's always a possibility of loss. Moreover, you should not assume that any discussion or information provided here serves as a receipt of or as a substitute for personalized investment advice from WBI or from any other investment professional. To the extent that you have any questions regarding the applicability of any specific issue discussed to your individual situation, please consult with WBI or the professional advisor of your choosing. This information is compiled from sources believed to be reliable. Accuracy cannot be guaranteed. Information pertaining to WBI's advisory operations services and fees is set forth in WBI's disclosure statement in Part 2A of Form ADB, a copy of which is available upon request.